0: This is Channel
1: 253. In this episode of Citizen Tacoma.
0: And that I think I think healthcare in general is really right for disruption, but especially behavioral health care. So that means we need a different fiscal model that, re, that rewards us for, um, you know, helping people get well, not uh, delivering a widget.
1: The Citizen Tacoma podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candace Rood and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to alaskaair.com. I'm Candace. I'm Doug. And we are the Citizen Tacoma podcast, informing an empowered electorate. I
2: thought we were empowering an informed electorate. In in the the city city of Destiny. destiny. Citizen Tacoma.
1: Hi, doug hi candace we have very serious and important discussion about the state of what's going on with our mental health systems locally and kind of statewide yeah it's not all doom and gloom you'll you'll <laughs> be exposed to some of the the troubles and difficulties but also some of the direction and hope that is out there yeah <laughs> All right, welcome to Citizen Tacoma. Uh, we are here today to talk about the state of mental health in our city, and we have three ga- great guests today. Can you guys introduce yourselves? I'm Kim Zocker <laughs> with Comprehensive Life Resources.
3: I'm Joe Leroy with Hope Sparks Family
2: Services. Uh, Matt Driscoll with the News Tribune.
1: Yeah, so thank you guys for coming on. really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about this. I think it's an issue that... Um, you see a lot just in in the news and the pages of the News Tribune. Just walking around our city, mm-hmm. it's something that we talk about a lot. But people see, like, who knows what's the solution? That's always mm-hmm. kind of the question people are asking. It's like with homelessness, like, what's what exists now what Are the challenges? What's working? What's helping? And how, yeah, how do we fix this if we can? So, can you guys give like kind of an overview of how the mental health system works in Tacoma or is
2: it supposed to work? Supposed right. to work? Yeah. Sure,
3: <laughs> uh, it's an it's interesting question because it's changed significantly within the last year and kind of how the system is set up. And so, I don't know if we want to kind of do a sort of like how it was set up prior to 2019 and how it's supposed to be set up now and what it will look like going into the future. Mm -hmm. Would that be helpful? Yeah. Okay. So I can speak from um, our perspective. Our organization, um, we're a 124-year-old organization here in the community, and we've served – we've done mental health work for most of that time. Our focus has been on kids um, and some adult work and – now really mostly a focus on pediatrics. And so I'm going to rely on Kim heavily here to kind of help cross the continuum all the way to the other side of care and um, in that conversation. But so, and Kim, you're probably better to speak to this, but I, but I can, but let me try to give sort of the, the version of this, that, how I understand it. So prior to 2019, we had what was called access to care standards in our state um, and in our county. And so in order to, um, if you were on Medicaid and you were going to access the mental health system, you had to meet what was called access to care and if you think about a population of roughly 850,000 people, I believe our Medicaid population, po- population was about a quarter million. Um, and so out of a quarter million people on Medicaid accessing our mental health system, um, meeting access to care was the thing that either allowed you to get into that system or not into mm. that system. Okay. So if you don't meet access to care, where do you go? Um, you go to another non-Medicaid provider that doesn't, provide services above the threshold of access to care or was not contracted with the Behavioral Health Organization or BHO, as most people know it. And so in our community, it was called – it was Optum for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you've heard things through the years like the RSN, the Regional Support Network, which was our county mental health system. And then that was run by the county. Correct. And then the county said, we're going to RFP this out. That was about 12 years ago now, 10 years ago. Yeah, it was 2008, I believe. Okay. So we um, did that process, and then Optum Health came in to run our our RSN, our Regional Support Network, which is our county Medicaid mental health system. Um, that name flipped in 2016 to what was called the BHO, or Behavioral Health Organization. So if that's hopefully not too um, in the weeds, right. the BHO <laughs> runs essentially runs the Medicaid mental health system, and in order to get access, you had to meet access to care. That's for the Medicaid population.
1: Mm. And yeah, can you describe what that is just for if listeners aren't, if some listeners aren't? Yeah.
0: Yeah, let's, let's, that was a really good overview, Joe. This is hard <laughs> to explain. A little more history here is that um, access to care essentially means a level of intensity of need. Mm-hmm. So if you or I come in, our, our parent has passed away, we're having some grief, um, but mostly things are going okay in our lives, we're probably not going to meet that quote, access to care, unquote. Mm-hmm. It was, um, a pretty high bar. And as funding, when years when funding was really tight, the bar went up and years when funding was better, it wasn't as bad. Mm -hmm. Going back to kind of the foundation of our state, there's two things I was thinking might be helpful for folks to know. One is that our system of care is based on um, ITA laws that look at imminent risk. So in some states, the bar to get into intensive services and involuntary services is need for treatment. Here in this state, we have a bit of an unusual system where um, we have focused on imminent risk. And that's going to become important when we try to explain to people why they have family members and friends or themselves mm-hmm. who clearly need a level of intensive services and can't get it. Right. The other thing to know about the time that the BHO came in, Optum Health came in, is that we went through a transformation around parity. So we fought really hard in the 90s um, as an industry to say that people should have access to behavioral health the same way they have access to physical health. So... Years ago, it was often that you had to buy a special rider on your health insurance to get mental health care or substance abuse care. So it didn't matter whether you were in Primera, those, whatever your insurance was, you had to buy extra care. Now that's illegal. Um, Every insurance plan has to offer behavioral health care. And that seems like such a great thing and it is in a lot of ways. But the downside of that is it brought us into the medical services world and an insurance driven payment system. Mm -hmm. And so prior to that, we had a lot of flexibility in our funding to provide responsive, locally developed services that really looked at what people needed in each region, each community. Now we have a very prescriptive, insurance-based set of services that we can provide. And how that comes together with Access to Care is that we did get higher rates inside that Access to Care system to provide some additional services, which were really great. Things like Um, home visits, certified peer support, case management. But if you didn't get into that world through Medicaid, you didn't get access to any of those Mm. services. Yeah,
3: and if you can imagine a quarter million people trying to get access to that system and the ones who don't meet it, where do they go? And so there weren't very many providers who would be able to take – what we call state-published rates, which was the rates outside of the system Kim described. So providers just said, we're not going to take Medicaid, wow. and access became challenging. Our organization was one of the few who said, we will do that, mm-hmm. um, and we, we've nested our behavioral health services within a large family-serving organization, and so we can kind of set it up in a braided funding model where it doesn't have to be perfect. If it was standalone mental health, it would be way more challenging than it is. So that said— um, kids or families who didn't meet access to care would typically come our way. And um, otherwise, they wouldn't have anywhere to go. And that still hasn't been enough. Mm. Now, fast forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. We have healthcare integration. In 2016, um, legislation passed that mandated the integration of substance abuse and mental health treatment. That happened on April 1 of 2016 at the BHO level. And then 2020 um, is the integration of physical health, mental health, and substance abuse, really known as behavioral health.
4: Mm.
3: It's kind of definitions have kind of gotten wonky, but behavioral health is really the intersection of physical health, mental health, and substance abuse, (laughs) technically by definition. But we say behavioral health more kind of blanketly now. So the idea of this is, to your question of how is this supposed to work, access to care goes away, Hmm. and um, all of the provider network is now on equal ground in terms of how we contract with Medicaid. What happened in that transition is this. Um, The BHO, by definition or legislatively, dissolves, and that happens statewide, right? Mm -hmm. So the BHO dissolves, and then our county RFP'd out Medicaid contracts to all of the Apple Health Medicaid providers, and they bid for um, the contracts within our region. Mm -hmm. So five uh, Medicaid companies, contractors, Apple Health providers bid for the services. Our county awarded four of the five. Um, so now we have four Medicaid plans that operate within Pierce County. Optum rebid for our crisis service continuum and lost that bid to Beacon Health Options. So Beacon Health Options now runs our crisis continuum. Our four Medicaid providers now run the Medicaid system. In this perfect world, the, the access to care was supposed to dissolve, providers were supposed to contract through this integrated managed care network across all of the providers um, and plans. And we'd have this system where we could really begin to increase access and capacity Mm. that did not happen. And let me rewind a little bit. Um, The initial rollover date was 2020. Our county decided to go what was called middle adopter. And we went 1-1-2019. So a lot of counties will go coming up here pretty soon, but mm. Pierce went 119. So we're really in the first year. And as, a, as an organization who was not in the former BHO, um, what we're being told is sort of hang tight. Um, let us figure out how to get the BHO through this transition. And then we'll get to you later. Now heading into <laughs> 2020, we're being told hang tight. We don't <laughs> really know how this is going to go. And we need to get through this transition. And so um, it's creating real discrepancies in, in care and in rates and access in provider networks. Um, the provider community has been very challenged to manage the transition. Uh, I will say Pierce County uh, set up an oversight board to oversee this transition. Um, Senator O'Bann and Connie Lattenberg, co-chair of the board. Kim, you're on that board. I am on that board. Um, I'm sitting on the board of the Accountable Communities of Health as well. And there's lots of conversation about kind of how to, how to make this go smooth. Um, the county has been fantastic, in, in my opinion, about listening, hearing, resolving, taking action, not just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've been mm-hmm. great. Um, Steve Oban was appointed council, behavioral council to Executive Dan Meyer, and he's done a fantastic job. And he's been so responsive and receptive. And I mean, I was on the phone with him for 30 minutes on Friday, just talking through some challenges. And wow. so they've been really good. What hasn't happened is the healthcare authority authorities set these contracting parameters about how the managed care organizations or Medicaid organizations would operate in the regions. And we're finding there's no way to hold them accountable to it. So things like network adequacy, capacity, rate structures, um, how do you determine if you have network adequacy within your network, the types of providers. They're really supposed to be looking at how do we make sure that there's no gaps in services. What they're saying is we have what we need within the former BHL. We're good. We don't really need anything else. Hmm. So there's no way to kind of leverage or negotiate, um, and it's it's very concerning at, at this point in time and sort of how do we navigate that because their their minds are pretty made up, in a lot of level.
0: I think, and so I agree with Joe that the county has done a really great job of leaning into this issue. After a lot of years of being pretty hands off when Optum was involved, there is a a challenge in bringing. Um, in our county for for for-profit insurance companies and because their contracts with us are proprietary. Mm. So, you know, Joe and I as two mutual agencies cannot talk very much about our specific contracts. Neither can we talk about them with the government. So you have restraint of trade issues, um, competition issues that make oversight a new challenge for the state. And I know healthcare authority is struggling with um, what do they have the right to regulate in these private contracts? Right.
3: And to your question earlier, Matt, um, that we were talking. said like one thing 15 <laughs> minutes ago. No, yeah. before we started, out there. <laughs> <laughs> around, you know. And so, like, correct me if I'm wrong. Kim, with inpatient beds, you have to contract so many beds with this plan or so many beds with this plan, or, or or how does that kind of?
2: Well, here can I can I stop you yeah. guys for a minute because uh, that was really awesome and maybe I just haven't had enough coffee yet, but th- th- I mean that's intense, right? That's mm-hmm. a lot that's for a people. Lot uh, yeah.
0: So and Joe and I barely needed a breath. We could go for another. Right.
3: So and it's hard to translate this world. It really is, which yeah. is why
2: people. Yeah. So, and I realize just full, fully acknowledging it's only a small part of it. But let's talk about beds because I think like that's a part that people can understand and they mm-hmm. can kind of see it, right? Like we know back in 2017, uh, Pierce County had about three psychiatric hospital beds yeah. per hundred thousand people. King County had about mm-hmm. 27. So there's obviously a huge need for that. Um, you got things like Wellfound coming on, you know, mm-hmm. are supposed to increase that capacity. Capacity. Could you talk a little bit about the different kind mm-hmm. of beds? Mm -hmm. what population they're supposed to serve, and kind of where things get mucked up when— we don't have enough. Sure.
0: Okay. A, I, I could go all day, but I'm going to – I want to
3: say one thing before you start. We just touched on the Medicaid system. We did not talk about the private insurance system. Exactly. Just in that conversation, I want people to hear that. Right. Like, what is the system, how it's supposed to work? We haven't even touched on the private insurance side of this whole thing. So I just want to call that out before we That's
0: shift complex. gears. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you did because it does impact the bed conversation, Matt. is so so bad. That stat is really interesting. So the three beds per 100,000 individuals doesn't take into accounting what we, what we consider freestanding evaluation and treatment facilities. So we actually in this county have four evaluation and treatment facilities that do involuntary behavioral health care, mm-hmm. um, but they're not in a hospital. So th- with those beds, we actually have a pretty good amount per capita w- compared to other counties. Nobody has enough. But the way this is supposed to work is that um, you have an opportunity in your community to have voluntary inpatient beds and involuntary inpatient beds. Mm-hmm. So voluntary would be where we the the patient or the client um, and and all of the treatment providers agree they would really benefit from an inpatient stay. We functionally have none of those beds because there's such a scarcity. Wow. So people must fail into, an inpatient bed, and when That's I mentioned, crazy. and when I mentioned um, imminent risk to qualify for a hospitalization, you you must be, we must show that you would um, be an imminent risk of losing your life or take or hurting somebody else seriously to qualify for an inpatient bed. Wow. So, from a common sense perspective, people experience that as being an insanely high bar, mm-hmm. including providers. So. Um, so we, we have functionally very little voluntary beds. The who are they for is an interesting question as well. So you have – I'm going to let Joe talk about the pediatric system. But in the adult system, you have um, sort of three different kinds of beds. Acute hospitalization beds. So that is, you know, maybe up to 72 hours. So it's, it's a, a couple days. Right. right now, most of those hospital stays had been done at St. Joe's. Um, inpatient unit, um, you know, sometimes in an emergent, often in an emergency room, someone will stay there for a few days. They could go to an ENT depending on the complexity of their needs. What's that? That's the – sorry, the Evaluation and Treatment okay, Center. Gotcha. the standalone 16-bed units. Okay. Okay. After that point um, – you may need to stay for a couple of few weeks, you know, 14 days, right? Sort of your next benchmark. So the first benchmark is 72 hours in an involuntary treatment agreement. The next is 14 days. At any time during that, someone could be discharged if they were ready to go. You don't have to stay that long. But those are, the, those are sort of the benchmarks.
3: Do you find that's long enough, Kim, to get people evaluated, treated, you know, if if they need to be on a medication long enough to see if the medication works mm. before they're just sort of...
0: Well, let me let me come back to that because there is that legislation that is being proposed to extend the first window to five days. But after that, if you need a long-term hospitalization, that's when people go to Western State. Mm. So that's where some people go to Western State Hospital and some people are in our local hospitals. But here's the challenge. One is that um, you mentioned WellFound. The unit at St. Joseph's Hospital, which was 23 beds, I believe, 23, 24 beds, closed in June. But WellFound has had well-documented issues and didn't open mm-hmm. as we had planned. The other thing about WellFound is that their, their intention is not to be all Medicaid or all involuntary treatment. Um, a, a lot of their beds are intended to be voluntary, which is wonderful. But so I think a lot of people think they're a panacea, and that's not true. The other thing is well-found is a standalone behavioral health hospital. So they, along with the evaluation treatment centers, are limited with some of the complexities they can serve. A lot of the people that get stuck in an emergency room and can't leave there or, or end up on what we call single-bed certifications have really complex physical health issues as well as behavioral health. So um, that... We don't have capacity to that we don't have a, a place in our community. And frankly, nowhere in the state is this readily available. Somebody who potentially has dementia and severe psychosis, somebody who has um, a lot of they're not mobile. So they're in their wheelchair bound and they have, you know, bipolar disorder that's causing them to feel suicidal. Those individuals often get stuck in just some hospital bed. And what, what, the reason it's called single certification is we, quote, certify that as a mental health bed. Mm. But they're not getting the treatment they need because there's no mental health treatment embedded in an oncology wing where you might right. have a bed if, if that's available. And so it is a very complex system. Um, let's have you talk about the kids system, and then we can talk about the lengths of stay and how people experience their hospitalization it's,
3: Yeah, so we don't do the crisis kid system. You probably know more about that world than I do. I can talk about sort of like how we're trying to keep kids out of that system. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's interesting. We talk about Whenever I'm reading about mental health, typically on the front page of the paper, it's usually jails, emergency rooms, homelessness, hospitals, the these website, kinds of sure. things. On <laughs> <laughs> be honest. The Nobody oh, picks up I, the paper. A, I am a TMT. Um, subscri- <laughs> Thank uh, you, d- Digital subscriber. Digital. Man. Digital. Yeah. 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 Same. Yeah. Same. Um, <laughs> when I'm reading it on my computer, <laughs> and I we've got
2: three of them in a room. <laughs> <laughs> cr-
3: what always crosses Focus my <laughs> mind, and and I have lots of conversations with people in the community about this: is the, the mental health system or system quotes is so much bigger than just that that piece. And so we typically always think about the mental health system as this far end of the continuum. Mm-hmm. And we don't really talk enough about how do we get upstream and really how do we prevent people from getting in those places to those places in the first place. Um, I recently saw a stat I think the CDC said most serious mental health issues in adults onset is usually around 14. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are we doing before that time? And so Our organization really works um, with kids and families prenatal. um, And then we have a large birth to three program here in the community that serves early intervention. And we've embedded early infant and early childhood mental health into that continuum. Um, We do outpatient services that focus on trauma, depression, anxiety, behavior, ADHD. Um, We have a team embedded at the Child Advocacy Center at Mary Bridge that does sexual assault work. And we're out in community, other community settings. Hopefully, Kim and I will be able to talk in a little bit about our collaborative care models that we're building in partnership with the ACH and University of Washington because I think that's some really exciting work that's mm-hmm. happening. Um, but for us, it's how do we keep kids from getting there? Right. What I'm starting to read now about kids is families are using um, the emergency rooms and 911 mm-hmm. to get mental health access. So what we've been talking about for a long time with grownups ups I use the term grown up." sorry, with grown-ups, is now happening with kids. And so Mary Bridge has seen a 400% increase in their emergency room visits since 2012. Mm-hmm. 70% of those are mental health-related. Wow. So we're sort of repeating the pattern that we've created in the mental health system with adults now with kids, and mm-hmm. so we're in this crisis space. Um, and there's some great efforts going on to, talk, to, to sort of deal with that, too, if there's an opportunity to talk about that. And so um, how do we get enough capacity to help kids not get to that space. Um, What do the hospitals do when they're getting overwhelmed with kids in those spaces? And then um, sort of the crisis bed issue is happening just again now, even further up the stream. And so it's this really um, challenging time um, across the whole continuum and um, the the capacities is challenged. The stat – Dr. Chris Laddish, who's the chief medical officer at Mary Bridge, sent me some information over the weekend. And she said uh, for every one bed that's held Mm -hmm. up in the Mary Bridge Emergency Room for Mental Health, that's nine medical visits that cannot happen because of that one mental health visit. So for every one mental health visit to the ED, that's nine kids that are not getting the medical. And so typically we could be treating those kids in in, in an outpatient setting um, or we could be getting those kids in. Um, through outpatient mental health where they may not, not ever need to do that, or we're catching those kids in primary care early on. Um, but families aren't getting that access, and so they end up in crisis, and so then, then the whole thing just kind of spirals.
0: And, and it really is a similar challenge in the adult services, and it's not, this is not a Pierce County issue. This is a national mm-hmm. issue. When you look at healthcare care spending um, in the Medicaid population, 1% of Medicaid participants spend 25% of the dollars. 5% spend 50% of the dollars. And it's, to Joe's point, it's it's absolutely um, people with complex health issues who aren't getting preventative care. Mm-hmm. A couple of the programs that we um, run at COMP, and, and there's many in the community, but that are really trying to tackle that. One is the community, um, the mobile community intervention response team that you see a lot in the news, the MSERT program. And you know that is very much aimed at the population Joe just mentioned. So Our referrals all come from EMS through the fire departments and the police of people that are calling 911 quite a lot for behavioral health issues. Mm -hmm. And our team is able to treat physical health and behavioral health issues because they mostly happen in concert. Um, You'll see some statistics that 80% of people who end up inpatient in a hospital have a behavioral health component to their issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And 30% of our money is spent in hospitals. So we have a hospital-oriented system and a healthcare system. And I know that people worry about beds. But to Joe's point, we really as a community need to have a conversation more about what are we doing before and after someone's in the hospital. Because Mm -hmm. at that point, really not a lot of treatment is happening. And three days in a hospital, there's very little opportunity to do much of anything. That's a very quick turnaround. and. Sending people home with, "Hey, here's a counselor's name. Hope you can Mm-mm. see him in four or five weeks." is not adequate.
3: You know, the Washington State Academy of Pediatrics recent study uh, around access said it takes a parent 26 phone calls to secure a mental health appointment right. for their child. That's uh, this unacceptable. Is totally unacceptable. <laughs> yeah, so, and most of these things are preventable. They're yeah. treatable upstream. They're you know common things that we can see in mental health that really impact many people. They don't have to get to crisis.
0: And to and just to clarify this is not new information to all of us so what gets in our way? you might be asking all right, here's two executive directors why aren't you what what are you guys doing to fix these things And we are in this community building some really interesting programs so um, we're getting ready to launch off a first episode psychosis um, model that we really try to look at those 14 year olds who are developing serious mental health issues. Both of our agencies are offering services in completely new ways embedded in, primary care um, community linked um, in schools lots of different opportunities where we're trying to embed services but um, there's two really difficult problems one is workforce so mm-hmm. one is just really practical it is impossible for us to recruit enough people to do this work
1: and what's what like positions are those specifically? Well, I'll say
0: for my agency specifically, it's master's level therapists, Mm -hmm. um, social workers, counselors, family therapists. um, Psychiatric nursing is really difficult for us. And we're competing. Is that a
2: Pierce County specific problem?
0: No, No? it is definitely a statewide problem. But in Pierce County, we have some unique challenges. So we are competing in Pierce County with Western State, Mm -hmm. who the state pays. Extremely high wages because it's difficult to work at Western State. Yeah. It's very hard conditions. We have JBLM who is a great employer and, again, pays very high Mm -hmm. um, wages compared to uh, nonprofit community mental health centers. And then, frankly, you have the healthcare systems, and they will pay whatever it takes to get behavioral health in their hospitals. And so we struggle to compete as nonprofits um, to have people. I think people really like the work we do. Joe and I marvel at our employee satisfaction surveys where people love working for us and simply can't afford it. They're coming with – Often fifty to seventy five thousand dollars. Excuse me, fifty to seventy five thousand dollars of student loan repayment. Um, They're paying a lot to work in a field that doesn't pay them much. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Matt knows nothing about that at all. Being a (laughs) journalist,
2: I'm affluent. Go on.
0: Yes, and then the other challenge really is, um, you know, just funding. And so the funding is really inadequate for the hard work that we do. And you, the way that our healthcare system is set up, and behavioral health is no different. We get paid by widgets. Right. So we fee for service means I just Candace, if you come see me, mm-hmm. I only get paid to do a few services. They may not be the things you actually need. Uh-huh. But what's billable, right? right. What's, what's billable. billable. And so so our
3: service arrays are driven by those things. Right. Yeah. And what I didn't mention earlier in the, in the Medicaid ramble was the, 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 the goal, the end goal is to move from a fee for service environment to what they call value based payment. Mm -hmm. So ultimately we're getting paid for outcomes and coordination of services, not just the widgets that Kim's Mm -hmm. speaking to or the visit. What can I, what's billable in this visit? That's why, you know, if you go to the chiropractor, you end up with six billable things. It's like, what do they do during the? I have no idea. Um, but we're trying to move away from really that. And so what is – but we haven't really defined that yet. And so there's a stepped model um, that the healthcare authority has laid out that says we will be in 90% value-based payment contracting by – I think it was like 2021. But we're way behind. We haven't even really got there yet. And so I imagine that will be pushed. So it will be interesting to see what metrics, outcomes – what are the things we need to be measuring that drive those payments? We're just starting those conversations now. Um, I pull, actually pulled the governor's health care workforce um, recommendations that just came um, out just this last month, November. Um, mental health substance abuse positions have the longest vacancies, out of any vacancies. Um, the desire to work in community mental health has lessened because of all the reasons that Kim mm-hmm. talked about. Um, we're losing um, our potential candidates to medical industries, and um, the underfunding and low reimbursements don't allow scale or livable wages. And so um, if you read like the Governor's Workforce Initiative or the Governor's Workforce Recommendations, the Children's Mental Health Statewide Workgroup Recommendations, the HSRI Recommendations, if you read all these things, they all say the same things. Reimbursement rates, um, credentialing issues, um, workforce initiative, mm-hmm. data sharing— and yeah. what's, the, what's the fifth one that always comes? Coordination of services. Mm-hmm. Those are the five things that can in every... We don't need any more reports or statewide work groups <laughs> to no, tell us these five things. we know what we need things. to do. We need to do it. Mm-hmm. And so data sharing um,
1: between different like hospitals and entities yeah. and that's always yeah. a
3: problem. Yeah. HIPAA HIPAA mm-hmm. and we're all HIPAA covered entities in this work too
0: which mm-hmm. which is another challenge. But beyond that it's also understanding the value we provide. Mm-hmm. So right. when we talk about value-based contracting with our managed care organizations I tell them I need to know utilization data. Right. I need to be able to show you what I what I believe I know anecdotally and from my own electronic health record that if people are in our services, they use less emergency services Mm -hmm. that, but we don't have a way to show that we don't have that billing data. How do you show that if you don't have any data about what utilization looks like?
1: Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. It's this sort of show us that show us, you can save cost by doing this work earlier in life and we'll have a conversation. It's, it's, and then how do we do that? How do we show that we're saving? And so that's, that's the next big task. It's, it's unfortunate that we have to have a proof of concept um, that we're saving money by working with families and kids earlier in life than later in life. Right. And so there's good research around that. There's, there's good data. It's now sort of compiling it and proving it and sort of we're in the space of um, really measuring success. What does measuring success look like?
0: So when you ask about what, where are we going, what's the future, What's what, what are Joe and I even doing in this field anymore? Because we've, we've had a lot of discouragement. I want to say this is kind of the renaissance of behavioral health. Agreed. I, we have never known more about how to treat mental health issues than we do now. Right. I remember leaving graduate school in the late 90s. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I got trained in those archaic mental health systems. Yep. Remember transactional analysis? Yep. I mean, oh my gosh. So I knew nothing. I remember combing bookstores. I worked in Portland. I was at go to Powell's bookstore and just be looking for anything about what to do with people needed help. My clinicians are so lucky. They are trained in all mm-hmm. these evidence-based practices. Yep, same here. Cognitive, Yeah, we all train them that's in amazing. cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectal behavior therapy. I mean, just different family programs. So we are really good at this. <laughs> so that's the irony, is that we actually really know what to do. And I and I do want people to hear that, that um, there this is a great time to go get treatment. I mean, we really we really do know how to help you. And our stats do show that. I mean, mental health treatment really does help people. But the other thing that we're charged to do a lot is host a community conversation about mental health, not mental illness. Or health in general. Health in general. So – Here's the thing everybody in the community needs to help rally around with us is um, there's this notion of social determinants of health, right? So these things that keep us all healthy. And as much as I love my expensive mental health degree, the truth is healthy living is better than I am as a therapist. So things like a built environment that's safe and healthy, housing stability – Healthy food, having connection to other human beings, it's not electronic. Um, Mm -hmm. Every bit of research we're getting about technology is discouraging for all of us who love our iPhone um, or Android, if you're an Android person. um, Boo. Yeah, boo.
2: Um, (laughs) But that is (laughs) –
0: We're (laughs) We're (laughs) booing it. Come on. Of all the problems, we're going to go after Android now. Wow. No comment. Um, (laughs) But but that is really a problem is that a lot of times people come into Joe and my – World, or frankly, who go to their doctor and end up on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications, really need help being healthy in general. Mm -hmm. And so that, when I look at these statistics, like forty percent of the adult population endorses a mental health issue every year. I, in in my head, I to be honest, I think that's not a really good picture. That Mm -hmm. that that's not totally accurate. Mm -hmm. Forty percent of us are not mentally ill. Right. We have mental, we have emotional, mental distress and stress because our lifestyles are not great. And this county does have challenges with affordable living, traffic that's coming up and wearing people down, you know, just a lot of um, people spend a lot of their life doing things that don't contribute to their wellness. Okay.
1: And so that's, that's a challenge for all of us, really. All right, yeah. let's take a quick break. And we'll be right back.
4: This is Alaska Airlines mileage plan MVP, Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister podcast, Nerd Farmer. Hope and I are setting off on a new adventure. We're moving to the Middle East for the next few years and exploring a new culture. Don't worry, don't worry, the Nerd Farmer podcast isn't going anywhere. But do you know what is coming with us? My Alaska Airlines mileage plan. Here's what's cool. Alaska has more than 15 global partners, which allows me to earn and use Alaska miles even when I'm not flying Alaska. So if I leave SeaTac and fly direct to Dubai on Emirates on an eligible fare, I'm going to earn Alaska miles on that flight. That means whenever I fly home, I'm going to be racking up some insane miles that I can use to book future travel. If you have an international vacation plan, check out the list of Alaska Airlines partners, like Japan Airlines, British Airways, Cathay Pacific, Qantas, and a whole lot more. Enter your Alaska Airlines mileage plan number when you book with Alaska Global Partners, and watch those miles add up toward elite status on your next trip. My thanks to Alaska Airlines for their continued support of Channel 253. Learn more at alaskaair.com backslash global partners.
1: Okay, we're back. All right. Well, if you're enjoying this very deep, complex, and super educational conversation about our mental health system uh, regionally and in the state and how messed up it is and what we should be doing to fix it, please consider becoming a member of Channel 253. It's only $4 a month or $40 a year. And only
2: $4 a month?
1: That's right, oh my Matt. Goodness. Can you believe it? That's a deal. It's less than a digital subscription to the News Tribune. <laughs>
2: Yeah, <laughs> go to channel253.com
1: slash membership. Anyway, yes, Matt. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> Sorry to dog More, on the news. No, it's good. It was, I mean, I'm it's both true. Me- I'm both a member and a subscriber. It's tough but fair. Thank you. <laughs> um, so that was great. I mean, that was really great. It's a lot to lay on people, and I always tend to look at these things or try to look at these things from a reader's perspective and kind of boiling it down. And I think, you know, from from my experience and kind of what I've heard, a lot of people's interaction with the with the mental health system is either they themselves have a problem and they, they they think they need to get some help or they've got a family member <laughs> that they believe needs to get some help and maybe that family member is into it or not into it. Uh, either way, what seems to happen a lot of times uh, is that doesn't happen. They mm-hmm. seek services and for whether it's the bar that you guys mentioned or various other factors, it doesn't happen. So can you talk about that a little bit just from kind of in a layman's perspective of, you know, how that happens, why that happens and is there anything we can do to fix that? Yeah, good question.
3: Um, and just first and foremost to validate, it's frustrating. I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of the most frustrating things. Um, and to my stat earlier about twenty six phone calls, I mean, that's just totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. So I actually spend, and this is not good, but I spend a part, a portion of my days and weeks um, trying to find openings and beds and things mm-hmm. for kids. Um, I get emails, texts, Facebook Messenger. Facebook messenger I mean, they're all, coming in from all angles. Um, can you help? Can you help you out? There's sort of this – I was getting a, a text message from a parent who was in the ER with uh, her granddaughter um, just like a month ago, um, and Kim and I and the CEO of Rither are texting each other <laughs> to try to find a bed mm. for this kid and help the social worker in the ER. And I'm like, whoa, good thing. I mean, it's amazing we all know each other and we can do this kind of thing. But this is the thing sort of even happening behind the scenes of those phone calls. You have, you know, CEOs of organizations trying to do this, right. you know, in the trenches. Um, so that, that happens a lot. People in the community know us. They reach out to us all the time, can, you know, um, with challenges. And so um, there's, there's a few things we need to do. I, I have always been under this sort of um, belief that more is good, but it will not solve the problem. So I can talk about – and maybe this is a good time to kind of segue into some of the efforts that we're, we're, we're undertaking to change that. So our Pierce County Accountable Communities of Health, um, and that's going to be really hard to explain the whole – Accountable Communities of Health model in a short little blurb, so I encourage folks to go to um, the website. It's elevatehealth.org is our Pierce County ACH. But really, they're charged with Medicaid transformation in in this community and how we're going to get to value-based payment and set up systems that work. One of the things that we're doing um, in partnership with the ACH is what's called collaborative care. And collaborative care, the collaborative care model actually comes right out of the University of Washington here um, in Seattle. And um, it's an evidence-based model that looks at how do we um, integrate behavioral health and physical health together in one setting. And so they've done this in closed health systems. Um, they've they've done it with adults, and they haven't yet really done it well with kids or haven't really done it with kids or pediatrics yet. So there's um, a few partners that are um, working together to take collaborative care in partnership with Elevate Health and the University of Washington and build these collaborative care models in primary care. We are standing up the pediatric model for the, um, for the community, And so our partner in that work is Pediatrics Northwest. Um, They have four clinics here, three in Pierce, one in South King. They have about 65,000 kids, um, in their care, many who are Medicaid and private. And what we're trying to do is use a collaborative care model which embeds a behavioral health care manager into the primary care setting. Not on the 50-minute hour, go down the hall and get on a 50-minute hour, but into the workflow with the pediatrician. Literally walking in and, and they're a part of that workflow. What we've done is we've segmented the pediatric population by age and by By those age groups, we look at what are appropriate screening tools or what are the issues that are coming up that we need to be screening for and looking for. We do that in partnership with the the pediatrician. What we'll do then is enroll kids in collaborative care. So there's going to be a collection of kids that we see that might not need an outpatient mental health referral that right now are getting handed a list and they're trying to make those calls, and they're getting turned away. We think a lot of those kids might not even need to be making those calls, that we can be handling a lot of what's happening for them in primary care. So we're doing things that are um, able to be done in the primary care setting that address things like behavior, depression, anxiety, and some of the things that are coming up for kids. We track them, we use assessment tools. The behavioral care manager checks in with the families. We're working with the families regularly. We're helping them get connected to resources. If at any point in time those kids need an outpatient referral, The care manager then assists the family with making that happen. We do it. They don't just get a phone number to call. We then facilitate the referral and make sure that the child gets in. Mm. So that sort of – my dream would be that that would happen for every kid, that we wouldn't just be handing people lists. Um, And my dream is a payer agnostic system where it doesn't matter what insurance type you have, whose credentials on your panel, what the rate is, you know, how many therapists are on this list or that list that you just can – get an appointment. Right. We also know as we build this, what we call stepped care model, um, so many kids will get their needs met in primary care. So many kids will need an outpatient referral. So many kids will need a crisis uh, bed. So many kids will need emergent emergencies. Mm-hmm. But as we look across the population, we can better determine and figure out what we need. Part of the Medicaid transformation initiative happening and this shift away from fee-for-service is a population health lens, looking at the population as a whole and then how do we build services around those kinds of data points rather than what's billable and not billable
0: okay. on the i can talk to our um, collaborative care partnership it's a little similar but a, a little bit different and we're learning we're in a collaborative learning collaborative together so we're all learning this together so comprehensive life resources primary partner is community healthcare although we're doing some work with CHI Franciscan as well so, But with community health care, we are actually attempting to build some collaborative care clinics. We actually went for a grant that we didn't get, which was disappointing, but we, we continue to pursue this, looking at can we build a clinic together where a patient could not tell who was a comprehensive staff member mm-hmm. and who was a community health care mm-hmm. worker. And that our teams sit together and that, that the structure and foundation of the clinic breeds collaboration where nurses – therapists, doctors are all together in kind of a cubicle farm in the middle of this clinic. Mm -hmm. So similar to what, as Joe said, um, community healthcare actually has some behavioral health care staff already. But what they don't do is that more intensive level of the continuum. So if you need supported employment, supported housing, psychiatric care, intensive case management, home-based care, they don't do those things. So we bring those to their clinic. They bring to us primary care. People with serious mental illness live on average 25 years less than than our fellow citizens. Yeah. And many of them have very comprehensive and, and, and complex healthcare um, conditions and need a lot of support around diabetes, um, heart issues. Some of the medications they take, which save their life, also are hard on other parts of their body. Mm-hmm. So we know that, for example, some of our um, antipsychotic medications actually have a high rate of diabetes. So these are things we have to balance and manage with our with our clients. So we're really excited about this work. To Joe's point, we're really pioneering this here in Pierce County. I'm not aware of anywhere else in the state that has moved this far along that isn't in um, one healthcare system. So Ames, the Ames Center has really developed in this in Kaiser, type University of Washington type systems. And even there, it's really hard. This is not easy. It sounds so simple, but it's not. Where everyone's inclusive, Joe and I, our agencies are piling this as partners. Mm. So, you know, for Hope Sparks and Northwest Pediatrics to come together and decide this is a value and for COMP and CHC to do the same is really new and really pioneering. So it offers an opportunity for our community agencies that do more than just insurance-based work to bring the power of the other things that we provide service. Joe hasn't mentioned it, but his agency has a suite of early intervention services that they offer through the child abuse system, through the child mm. abuse prevention system. Um, our agency has a lot of homeless outreach work that we do. So we bring, as community agencies, more than you can get in the healthcare world, and that's really important. That that braided funding is going to be the key to making this work or not work.
3: Yeah, home visits, um, mm-hmm. kinship and relatives raising children's services, a mm-hmm. lot. You know that family service sort of suite. That then we're not just standing up these collaborative care models in clinics and then doing nothing around it. There's a full continuum to address social determinants of health and other things that come up that Kim men- mentioned. Um, So those are a couple of the efforts that are currently happening, I think, that hopefully—and, Matt, I don't know if overnight we're going to get there, and it's going to be frustrating, and it's going to take time. Um, But the dream is that we can handle a lot of those frustrations through collaborative care or the collaborative care model. The the partnership that we're doing with Pediatrics Northwest, we don't give the family a phone number anymore. We get the referral directly from— the pediatrician, we contact the family directly. The family knows we're gonna contact them after the referral is made. They're expecting a call from us and then we work to get that family in. Mm-hmm. And so
0: there's no here, call this place. Right. We're trying to get mm-hmm. away from that. As far as what to do, so Joe's right, we get calls all the time, texts of people who need support. And I think Joe and I are happy to do that. And I we I know our agencies are happy to be that resource. Sometimes we're not gonna be the place you get treatment, but we can help you navigate the system. But having experienced this myself too in my own family, um, it is hard especially if you have commercial insurance. So a couple things that people I, – I recommend people know. One is when there is a, a pretty good resource online, um, psychology today runs a fairly reasonable search engine mm-hmm. where you can put in the kind of private insurance you have a little bit about what you're looking for and get a list of a lot of therapists. Um, we do have a challenge in this community that a lot of therapists don't bill insurance who are in private, right. what we call private practice. So they're, they're, they're individual therapists who stand up or a aren't
1: taking new clients yeah. or aren't taking yeah. new, yeah. new or
0: clients, cash practices. Right. Cash another. practices. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so you, but that but that is i have i have had success in in finding some links there but the other thing is it's okay to go back to your primary care physician and say i can't find anybody and insist on them to support you they all have Um, the opportunity and the ability to do that. The same with your insurance company, especially if you're on Medicaid. So if if somebody has Medicaid, every one of the managed care organizations has care coordinators in-house. And and I think people need to push their insurance companies to provide the services people need. I think we tend to think of our insurance companies as this administrative thing. They're making a heck of a lot of money on our premiums, and we need to be outspoken about what we demand from them. It is time for commercial payers to pony up and have adequate net adequate networks. If you have employer given insurance, to um, your employer is giving you your insurance, let your employer know. Mm. I'm having trouble finding adequate services. I appreciate that as a CEO. If somebody has to buy insurance plans, I sit down with my broker and I say, look, this is what I'm hearing from my employees. I'm paying you a lot of money and they can't get access to care. So it's okay to, to, to bring that up. The other challenge I think people have, and I and I and this was a harder one. I think our community has done a really good job of trying to target stigma. But I think self-stigma is something people suffer with a lot still. So what I mean by that is people generally think it's okay for other people to get behavioral health help. (laughs) But often they don't give themselves that same kindness. Mm -hmm.
1: Well that's funny when you said like tell your employer, be like, what person wants to tell their employer I'm having trouble finding a therapist because I'm really depressed, you know, like that's so I think this is part of the problem, right? We don't we don't talk about it until
0: it is absolutely an emergency. And so even for us, we need to start looking at our own um, willingness to do preventative care Mm -hmm. and and to I think the other thing I worry about with especially the pediatric population is a lot of primary care doctors will prescribe medication. And really, the gold standard in treatment is medication with counseling. And frankly, medication is a last resort. I mean, my own chief medical officer would say, you know, they're very conservative. What's funny is our psychiatrists are actually pretty conservative about what they prescribe. But I I see a high rate of prescriptions coming from primary care on both the adult and kid's side. And I, I worry about that. Yeah.
3: Some of the other things too that I think that we don't think about is oftentimes mental health might be the seventh, eighth, or ninth thing that someone might actually need, but yeah. we don't really ask. Right. Yeah, um, we do a, a contract with. and I give you a couple examples. We we have a contract with Tacoma School District called Readiness to Learn, and the uh, it's Title One funding or learning assistance program funding that comes down to through and available for Title One schools. So your high poverty schools and we have skilled case managers that anytime there's an academic barrier for a child, um, we can get a referral from that school and schedule a home visit. Um, anything, anything that would prevent a kid from showing up ready to learn, Mm -hmm. we can go do a home visit and you'd be surprised. Um, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but the things are pretty fairly common. Oftentimes that are preventing kids from showing up ready to learn housing issues. Um, food insecurity, trauma, um, lack of supports for parents, like a lot of things that can be remedied or addressed or we can be working with a family on in that capacity rather than someone just handing that family a phone number mm-hmm. to say you need to go get mental health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a conversation we're having right now with Tacoma Schools. That contract got cut w- because of the budget cuts with Tacoma Schools. And the conversation sounded like we have to cut this contract, but can we have more mental health? And, you know, can we work with you to expand mental health? And then the conversation sounded like this is a thing that actually prevents you from needing more mental health Um, and and an easier way for us to help get families to mental health because we're in building trust. And so there's this real sort of like um, just the way we kind of think about this. Um, and it's just it's, – it's kind of mind-boggling. The other thing we're doing also in partnership with the Pierce County Accountable Communities of Health is a program called Pathways, another home visiting program um, for individuals on Medicaid. We started with a, with a, a pilot for pregnant moms, um, and now we're doing chronic conditions to address some of the things Kim, you had mentioned earlier. Um, again, home visiting – and the, what I love about this model, too, is it's not like we get so many sessions or so many visits or you can only spend an hour in someone with someone. We just go and do whatever it takes to work with that family to get connected mm-hmm. with whatever they need. And it's amazing the things that we can get people connected to, whereas in the past, these are folks who may not have had any access to systems or have had mistrust with systems or may not have been willing um, to engage with systems.
0: Yeah. One of the great things that Tacoma leaned into, or Pierce County leaned into with the equity, um, or excuse me, with the Elevate Health ACH effort was equity. And so that is really a factor here that we haven't had a chance to talk too much about yet. But Mm -hmm. um, equity in terms of culturally relevant services Mm -hmm. is a huge issue. Um, Equity in terms of transportation and access. We have this interesting county where we're both urban, but really ex-urban. I mean, we have a lot of folks who don't have access to transportation to get Mm -hmm. anywhere. And so Agencies like Joe and mine. The other thing that kind of makes us unique and, and something we love doing is a lot of home-based care. You've mentioned, we've both mentioned home-based care. One of the things we need to do is disrupt this delivery model, and that I think I think healthcare in general is really right for disruption, but especially behavioral healthcare. So we are really challenging, you know, for the first time ever, having prescribers go out to home visits and see people. Whether or not they take medication or not, just because they are experts and they should be out with these cases, we're not sure what's going on. Um, get in your car and go see people. Mm. So we're really, and that again, that that means we need a different fiscal model that, re, that rewards us for. Um, you know helping people get well not uh, delivering a widget right. um, so so access is a problem not just in scarcity and capacity building but just in really the pragmatics of getting there right. um, and we do have a lot of challenges in equity in this county and and I think like that's not new to Pierce County but I see that growing as we're um, a lot of the Issues that plague King County around mm-hmm. um, wealth inequity and and housing challenges are coming for us.
1: And well those people get pushed out to Parkland, Spanaway, and farther out because they can't afford to live in Tacoma anymore, there's not as good of public transit there, there's not as many services. No, That's you're a, right, Candace. Yeah. I mean our, when we geomap our
0: clients Ten years ago, they were mostly Tacoma-centric. Part of the reason that Comp has really moved to be an Pierce County-based um, agency is that our clients don't live in one place anymore. And frankly, neither do our employees. We have we have staff now in White River School District, Ording School District, Peninsula, way out in the Key. And it's not because, you know, we thought, gee, won't well, be fun to be everywhere. In fact, we're really struggling with how to do that. It's because those people living in those communities have really far to go to get any mm-hmm. kind of care. Mm-hmm. So, we have a lot of we've got some challenges yeah. as a community, but there's what I I guess the takeaway I hope people take is that we we really get it that you have the community of providers and healthcare leaders in this county and our government officials they understand this. They're pretty committed to it. Um I think we have some some really some some seeds of things that are happening that are are really good. Um but this is 20, we took us 20 years to get to this point. Mm-hmm. It's been 20 years since we had a functional behavioral health system in this state. and so it's not going to be a quick fix. and the amount of money that needs to be committed is a lot it's, it's deep. It's wide. How much
2: would a one tenth of one percent mental health sales tax help in Pierce County?
3: That's a really great question. I'm glad <laughs> you asked that question because that's another thing I hear all the time. If the county would just and you know, and I see, you know, Kim and I were actively involved in a lot of the advocacy for those efforts for years and years, and um, you see the dollar amount somewhere. What is it, ten or twelve yeah. a year or something? Um, here's what I. Here's what I. And I don't know what your answer is, but my answer is always this. It's another tool in the toolbox that's currently not in the toolbox. It's not going to solve the problem, but it will be another tool in the toolbox that can then be accessed and leveraged. Not just locally, but legislatively as well. When our legislators from this area go to Olympia and they hear, well, your county hasn't passed its one-tenth. We get hammered at the
0: state for not having passed it. As we should.
3: Right. Right. And so all of these things, the one-tenth, and our city of Tacoma has passed its Mm one-tenth. So if you look at the efforts that have been set up by the city's one-tenth, the efforts that could be set up by the county's one-tenth, the ACH, and some of the collaborative care models we're doing. Um, these things all work together to create the system that, that people are asking for. But they're all not in place, and they're all not working together yet. And so I think Kim's right. There's a there's an excitement in the community. I haven't seen this in all of my t- I've been in Pierce County since 2001. This is the most... Um, Collaborative. I've seen the community to come around this issue. Um, uh, we're we're all at these tables together. We're trying to solve this. There's momentum, and I think we're not. We're setting this up for the next 20 to 30 to 40 years. Mm-hmm. But right now is when we're going to really build that foundation for the future. And so it's not going to be fixed overnight, but if we we got to get it right now. While we're in this environment, part of what's funding the ACH and a lot of these efforts is the Medicaid waiver, the 1115 Medicaid waiver, which allows a lot of these dollars to come down into the county to do this work. And so part of this rush, 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 we got to get it all done is because we're really in a five-year window with this waiver. Um, but I don't look at the five-year window as we got to figure it all out. We got to... Um, build it for the future right. and make sure it's set up sustainably. Yeah, and
0: people should think. I mean, I hope I encourage people to think about this when they listen to um, different debates about where we're going as a country around insurance. Right. You know, are we better all in one insurance mm-hmm. system? Are we not? I mean, for, for as a healthcare provider, I, you know, I have a, the same kind of complex, mixed feelings everybody has about that. But I will say that trying to reform a broken system is made hard by harder by ten payers. Mm-hmm. Nobody really holds the collective responsibility. For um, man, for producing a quality healthcare product, yeah, and that 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 makes accountability real, real hard. Yeah, and we're
3: not trying to scale mental health as fast as we can. We're trying to scale quality mental health, yeah. evidence based yeah. mental health. Right. Um A couple other things I didn't mention. Help Me Grow Pierce County is being stood up right now. It's a coordinating, a a body working to coordinate services for for, um, kids birth to five. Um, The Kids Mental Health Pierce County Initiative is um, currently meeting. You'll be seeing more about that in the community. We're going to put on, we've put on a couple summits. We'll be putting on some more mental health summits to bring more awareness. That um, particular group is working to be a coordinated entity for mental health services for kids. Kids Mental Health Pierce is there's a website you can go there and read about it. Um, Help Me Grow Pierce County has a website you can go there and read about it. I'm happy to share all these things yeah. for you. Yeah, we can um, put them in the, the show workforce notes for sure. recommendations so that all yeah. these things are accessible. And to on people. the adult or side, that you,
0: with similar efforts, the Pierce County Behavioral Health Oversight Board Integration Oversight Board is standing up a regional capacity building and you know strategic design group which I think is going to be, again, as Joe said, really looking at 10 years, 20 years down the road. So these are good efforts. They they do take a lot of time. I think we spend a lot of time in rooms talking about this stuff. I never – Joe and I actually – I, I got here in 99, but we actually worked together when we were both case carrying a million years ago when um, I think you were, I ran the homeless um,
3: outreach. I, I ran the homeless beds for teens where I, we would bring kids in. up They were um, the hope beds they were called hope beds. I think they're resurfacing now. I Tacoma think they're housing. Are, yeah.
0: They and, and I was a therapist in a local uh, group home where we do, where we worked with adolescents. So we were literally going and
3: picking up kids we in gas stations and getting mm, them into wow. housing. It was, and it was amazing. And that went away for a long time. And that's, that gap's finally going to be filled. Again. And the reason
0: I bring that up is just just to know this this. Like everywhere in Pierce County, we're that weird mix of like really urban and big and tiny, 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 and everyone knows each other. And that comes right. in really handy when you're trying to reform things. There's a good a lot of there's a lot get, of shared capability. You can get stuff done in yeah, yeah. You there can some you, good can, you some good can do real talk with each other. Yeah, because yeah. you've been around each other long yeah. enough. There's not it's not easy to BS people. Right. and that's a good thing. Yeah. All right, we got
1: to sorry, we got to wrap it up. It? <laughs> um, I we could, I feel like we could have this conversation for like six hours. Well, <laughs> Joe and I could. We could go going all night. Thank
0: you for
2: the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much, you guys. You know, no. I mean, that. Was, I mean, it's like I feel like that was a. It was like a, a deep dive primer, and we could we could go on forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I'm really excited to hear about the collaboration mm-hmm. uh, that's happening. I think that's exciting. I know Joe personally. I, you know, I. I, I but I just think from from a family perspective mm-hmm. of a, of, a, of a someone who's trying to get a loved one into the system and the help they need. I just, you know, I just. I think it's still going to be terribly, terribly yeah. frustrating, and you know, it, it we, is. We, Agreed. You know, we can hear the you know Agreed. about all the hope for the future in the ne- next thirty to forty years, and I just you know I want to before we go, kind of just grounded in like you know these are pe- real people's lives, and obviously you guys know this. I'm not mm-hmm. suggesting you d- you don't know this, but you know for listeners out there, like you know real people's lives are at stake mm-hmm. when the, when the, when those services uh, can't get access the way they should, and uh, you know so it's just uh, I'm glad you guys are working on it. Thank uh, you. And it it, it does make me hopeful yeah and if,
3: if we have to hold the the folks at the systems level accountable the payers especially because we will have less and less of what you're what we're trying to get to if we cannot do that and so
0: um right. reach out to community mental health agencies if you don't know what to do mm. we may not be the place that you're going to get service but we can help you navigate the system
1: that's a really good note to close on i think yeah reach out
0: and mental health first aid it's okay to not be okay yeah mm-hmm. totally
1: <laughs> yeah all right thank you guys so much really appreciate it
3: thank you thank you thank you,
1: thank you. If you'd like to reach out to us about anything you heard on the show today, or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, please email me at candace.rude at gmail.com. That's candace with an i.rude, R U U D, at gmail.com. The Citizen Tacoma Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Candace Rood, and I fly Alaska. To book your next flight, go to AlaskaAir.com.
4: The Citizen Tacoma Podcast is part of the Channel 253 network. Check out our other shows Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, Crossy Division, Flanders B Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You. This is Channel 253.